Recording. Okay. You should have gotten everything back that I have for you. So I've, I've got everything graded. At least unless a couple people turn some things in early and I don't have those. I haven't graded like I had a couple people have turned in the article reviews. I haven't gotten those back. Gotten those back yet. I'll grade those all together when they come in this week. So we have coming up the first article review on due on Friday. And again, if you have questions, bring it by. Well, I'm getting kind of late to bring it by now, so you can bring it by Friday if you're going to turn it in later on Friday. Or you can email me a link and I'll be happy to take a look at it and give you any advice. If you're sure on your article, you're welcome to go with it. I'm not going to not telling you you have to send me the article first, but if you're not sure as to whether it's acceptable, you're certainly welcome to do that. The iTunes U quiz is up and will be up through Sunday, so through the 25th. So you've got till then to do it. You can take it any time now because there's not no new pictures being added. There's no new material to be covered. It only goes through the 16th. So you only need that. And then homework three, again, for now, do September 30th. And we'll see where we go from there. Because that I'm a little bit, little bit behind. We're about one, we're about one class lecture behind where we should be. And that's even taking into account that we've missed a class. So really, we're two behind. But one we can understand because we missed a class. So we're about one class lecture behind right now, which isn't necessarily bad because we pick things up as we go through the year. But homework three for now due September 30th, and then I did should have. Fixed and reopened the quiz. So, oh, okay. Should have reopened the quiz. So you still should have the quiz if you haven't taken the quiz because there's a little bit of material still to be covered today. That should be available through tonight. So if you haven't taken it yet, it's still. Oh, I didn't put it back up there because I didn't do that for the other class. So, didn't want them to feel jealous that you guys got an extra day and they didn't. But they're right about on schedule. It's you guys that I'm. I'm slow with this class. So, all right. Questions on the assignments. And hopefully this is a little bit closer to how I like to get things back within the week. Normally I was a little behind at first, but normally I try to get things back to you within the week that you've, the following week after you've turned them in. So hopefully if you turn me all in articles on Friday, I'll have them back to you by the next Friday. Don't promise them on Monday. Maybe by Friday you'll have Hopefully by Friday you'll have them. So our picture of the day for the day is the Pleiades. So good picture for this class. We'll be talking about these again later, later on in the class when we get a little bit further through and start talking about stars. But the Pleiades is a star cluster called the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades, but there's six bright stars. So good little, a little question there as to why there's only, why if there's six stars, why is it called the Seven Sisters? And one thing that people think may have been is that, you know, maybe thousands of years, maybe one of these stars has dimmed or something happened to one of these stars. You know, stars do change their brightness slowly. Sometimes they can go from being a brighter star to a fainter star. So maybe there were seven originally. Or maybe it was just, they just, it was six and it was close enough, so that's how they named it. But what you're looking at in the picture here is that you look at, you're looking at these, these stars through a haze. And you're seeing all the haziness of the gas and dust that surrounds them. And that's what's left over from when these stars formed. So a big cloud of gas and dust, and again I'm jumping ahead to lecture coming up in a few weeks, but a big cloud of gas, of gas and dust will start to collapse and will form little pockets of, that become the stars. And what happens is this gas and dust that's left over is the material that didn't collapse into the stars. And it's left scattered around scattered around the whole cluster of stars. 
Now eventually over time those, those stars are putting off a lot of energy and they will, they will push this gas and dust out. So if we come back in 10 million years, 100 million years, the gas and dust will be gone. It'll be spread out into space and it'll look like most other little stars. And in fact the cluster will be gone. This is what we call an open cluster of stars which means it's open, it's not bound gravitationally. So gravity isn't pulling all these stars together and keeping them together. They're slowly wandering away from each other and not fast enough for us to see in our lifetime. But again, if we come back in a million years and then in five million years and ten million years and fifty million years, they're slowly going to disperse out into space and there won't be a cluster anymore. But that's what we're seeing is the remnants of what was left here, the remnants of what was left. Now to take this picture, that was taken, it was a 30 hour exposure taken from Earth. So you had to do that a little interestingly, right? You can't take a 30 hour exposure all at once because it gets light. Especially this time of year, I mean there's no place on Earth right now. If you were taking this now, and I don't remember when it was taken if it's said, but if you were taking it right now, today, there is about 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark and it does not say when it was taken. So the only place you could do that is maybe if you went up really far north or really far south in winter, time, in winter, the appropriate winter, then you'd be able to take a picture for 30 straight hours if this were above the horizon all the time. But it would also set, right? So you're still not going to be able to do it. So you'd have to take it over a number of different evenings. So you'd have to have things very carefully aligned and put the image, keep the images together. But you can see so much more detail. Normally when you look at this, you lose a lot of this blue haze around it. You see these wisps around the individual stars, but you don't see a lot of this detail that's seen here. So again, we'll come back and we'll talk about star formation and all of that in, what are we up to? We're through, almost through telescopes. So yeah, we'll be jumping out to the planets and then the sun, and then we'll be on to stars here in a few weeks. Probably about a month from now we should be there. Questions? Questions? No questions. Okay. We're ready to try to finish chapter three then. We were almost done. Okay, we were doing, we were on to radio astronomy. We'd gone through optical astronomy and we were on to radio. And this is where I finished up last time. I showed you this slide and I was giving you some of the advantages of radio astronomy. So, you know, today's a good day for radio astronomy, right? You go look outside. If I wanted to observe, if it was nighttime and I wanted to go out and observe, Optical telescope isn't going to do too good, right? We're not going to see anything. But if we had a radio telescope, it would be observing just fine today. You can make observations right through the clouds. So you can observe 24 hours a day, so it can observe even right now. It doesn't matter that the sun's up. The sun's only brightening the sky, the whole sky, in visible light. But clouds, rain, and snow don't, inter don't interfere with it unless they get extreme, you know. Extremely heavy rain, eventually you can do it. Lightning and thunder, especially the, the lightning is really bad. The lightning will cause, you know, radio interference and will cause problems with it. The biggest thing that we get from radio astronomy, and as we're going to see as we talk about all the other astronomies coming up, is that we see a, com get a completely different view of the universe. If we look at this galaxy, this is, a, this is an unusual galaxy and we'll talk about them a little bit more later in the class, but it's what we call, it's a, it's in a peculiar galaxy. If you look, it's got a big band here and it's got this dust band through it. And this is a galaxy Centaurus A. Don't need to worry about the name. 
But if we look at it visibly and we ignore these two lobes, these, these, they ignore all this pretty colorful stuff, that's what we see for the galaxy. So it looks really unusual. Most galaxies don't have, don't look like this. Most of these galaxies either look nice and smooth and round or they have spiral structure to them. They don't look like this with a big dust band through them or a big dark band through the middle. But if we were to look at it in just radio waves to the same scale, we see instead, ignore all of this, you just see this lobe here, a jet, and a lobe up here. And that's all you'd see. You don't see any, any radio emission from the rest or very little radio emission from the rest of it. The radio is coming from something else. Which is telling us, and again, we'll come back to this when we talk about galaxies, that there's something interesting going down, way deep down in the core of this galaxy. And usually what it is, is we believe there's a black hole down there. Very big black hole. And black hole not, not the size of the sun or a few stars, but black holes that are many millions of times, have many millions of solar masses in them. And as material spirals into that black hole, before it crosses the point of no return, it can actually form a disk around it and it can actually shoot jets out. And that's what we're seeing. So in the ra- and that, those emit radio waves. So we're seeing two completely different views. And you wouldn't learn about the galaxy very well from looking at just either one of them. You know, the optical one tells you that something's interesting and the radio tells you something completely different. It says there's a lot of emission from this galaxy where there's no stars. And that maybe there's something interesting going, down in the co- going on down in the core. But when you can look at things in optical and radio and now in ultraviolet and ex- infrared and x-rays and gamma rays, you get a whole picture of what's going on across the spectrum. So that's where we finished up last time. Now, the biggest problem with radio telescopes, you don't need that, is their poor resolution. They don't get very detailed images. Remember we said the resolution depends on the size of the telescope. So the big telescopes, if we want to, for the same thing, if we want to look at this big telescope, we should get very good resolution. But it also depends, so it depends on the wavelength, It also depends on the wavelength divided by the diameter of the telescope. And that's the angular resolution. We want the smallest number we can get. We want it to be very small. A small resolution means it's good. When you have a very small, it means you're seeing very fine detail. So the problem with the radio telescope is that even though the telescopes are so big, and we looked at some last time that were 100 meters across, 300 meters across, you know, overwhelming anything in optical telescopes have, the wavelengths at which they're observing can be centimeters and meters instead of nanometers. And there's a big difference in the wavelength. So even though this is so much bigger, the wavelength is many times bigger than that and it makes the angular resolution very, very poor. So what radio astronomers do is make multiple, use multiple telescopes. So this is a picture here. This is the very large array, VLA, out in New Mexico. And it's a set of 27 radio telescopes. You can't see all of them here. But there's nine, 
there's three arms, it's in a Y shape, and there's nine on each arm. So there's nine going out this way, then there'd be nine going this way, and nine going that way. So there's nine in each case. And what they can do is they can all look at the same object at the same time, and they can combine the radio signals together over in the control room, so they can collect them all, bring, feed them all to the control room, and they can combine it in together to make sort of a super radio telescope. And that radio telescope can be as big in terms of resolution. In terms of its resolution, the diameter of the telescope now isn't one of these, which would be about 26 meters or so, or 26, 30 meters across. It would be the distance between the two furthest telescopes. So they could be miles apart. They could be many miles apart. So you, could get a, you can get an incredibly good angular resolution using that. That will give you a resolution comparable to an optical telescope. So you actually would be able to see the same amount of detail. So that's what the interferometry is doing. We're taking multiple telescopes together, adding up all their signals and combining them in a particular way. And I'm going to show you that here brief, give you a rough idea of it here in a minute. And making one telescope that's just as big as you've separated those telescopes. Now if you notice in the picture here, there's actually a little railroad track here. It actually has four different, there's four configurations. You can, these telescopes are movable. So they actually can take them, they go off their pedestal where they're mounted, they can be moved to this, and they can be taken. So there's a very big configuration and there's a more, this is the more compact configuration you're looking at right now where they're all close together. But they can take those further ones and take them out further along the railroad tracks and make, it e make the resolution even bigger. So there's two different configurations. There's some things where you don't need the big resolution, but you want the telescopes all close together. You can learn, depending on what you want to learn about on the object. They don't move very fast when you get them on those railroad cars. It's sort of like you've ever watched the, you know, when the shuttle was being rolled out, you know, it was crawling at like a mile per hour. It was just very slow. You know, you didn't, you know, nothing exciting to watch there. Well, these are about the same thing. They move at a couple miles per hour on the railroad tracks so that you don't damage anything. And in fact, I know they said they have to close down, you know, when they, one of them goes across a road. So you have to close down the road for a certain amount of time. And it's not kind of annoying sitting there watching this telescope slowly going across the road. Luckily, they're in the middle of the desert, so hopefully it doesn't block too much. But they don't do that constantly. It's not like they're going to change that and then Tomorrow, oh, this astronomer wants the big thing, we're going to move them. No, they're on a specific schedule and it says, okay, you know, I don't know exactly how it works, but for the month of September, we're going to be in this configuration. Then October 1st, we're down and we're moving. And then starting off for the rest of October, we're going to be in a different configuration. And they'll just go through that and cycle through. So when astronomers apply for time to use that telescope, they just have to apply for time when it's in the configuration they want. But that's one example. Now here's what interferometry does. Basically it takes, when you look at the two, when you look at the waves from from the source, or from different sources, how they interfere depends on how they line up, whether they're in phase or out of phase, and we talked about this a little bit with, when we talked about waves, but if the peaks, the peaks, crests line up with the crests, then they add up together, and that's 
constructive interference, they add together. And this telescope may be seeing them completely out of phase and destructive interference. Again, you don't need to worry about going through the details of it. But what we're looking at is how those phases change from telescope to telescope and over these 27 telescopes. And between each pairs. So you can do telescope 1 and telescope 8 and telescope 1 and telescope 10 and telescope 13 and telescope 21. So there's all these different pairs you can look at. And when you put that information all together by computer fortunately, right? Don't want to try to figure that all out by yourself. It can actually redo and get you a much higher resolution image by looking at how this phase difference. You don't always get either of these extremes. You can get things in between from the telescopes. And when you put that all back together, then you can understand more and you can use that to work back and get yourself a better angular resolution. So angular resolution in radio astronomy can now do as well, if not better in some cases, than optical. Sometimes you can do even better. Because this is just one example. So here's, well, let me do this, then I'll show you the example. So here's an example looking at a galaxy in radio waves and in optical light. So on the right, we're looking at an invisible light. Looks like a pretty little spiral galaxy. And there's another galaxy out here towards it. In the radio, well, not quite as pretty, but you can see the same basic structure. You get a lot of radio emission from core. The red is the very highest radio emission. There's something else going on out here where you've got a couple little radio sources. Now those could be parts of the galaxy. Those could also be something further out in space that just happens to be close to the galaxy. So those could be a distant galaxy that we're just not seeing. It's not very bright visibly, but it might be very, very bright in the radio. But the whole idea is you can see basically the same structure. So something like the VLA can map something in optical and get roughly the same thing we can see. But we can go beyond the VLA. We can actually combine, use further distances. Oh, okay. Interferometry, we can do it with visible light too. We're, tr we're working on it with visible light. It's getting better, but it's a lot harder because the wavelengths are so short. So you're looking at much, much tinier wavelengths. It's a lot harder to keep all that information together. But this is an example picture where we're putting, working on getting optical telescopes to do the same kind of thing. So it would be great. If we can get interferometry with visible light working great, then we can see so much more detail. We'll be able to see even finer. So then radio astronomy will be at a disadvantage again because they won't be able to get as much detail. And the problem with them being, you want them to be about comparable if you can because if a radio astronomer finds an object, they don't want to say, well, it's in this big blob on the sky someplace and you know, the optical astronomer puts a telescope there and there's three million stars and galaxies in there and they can't tell which one it is. Or vice versa, you don't want you know, the one, other one, the optical astronomer to say, yeah, I see something at the core of this galaxy, but they're looking at the whole big core and the radio astronomers see, well, I see like six different sources in there. So you want them to be nice if they're both about the same. You always want the, same, the best detail you can get though. Didn't I do it? Okay, I thought I put a slide up of that. So let me, let me break that for one second. I'll come right back here. Don't worry about this for a second. I thought I'd put up another picture and I must not have added it in here. The other thing we do with interferometry is, again, we're doing it with visible light, but I said the VLA, the VLA there, there's also the VLBA, the Very Long Baseline Array. I know they love these. I don't expect you to remember all these names. 
But that actually uses telescopes scattered across the United States. So it's a set of is it 10, or 15, 10 or 20 telescopes scattered across the United States. So you can observe the same object in Boston that you're observing in you know, San Francisco or wherever. And a couple places scattered in between with these 15, 20 telescopes. And you can get a tele radio telescope the size of the United States. Or go internationally, right? What's the best you can do from Earth? The diameter of the Earth, right? You could look at one edge of the Earth and one edge of the Earth, and you could look through those two telescopes to look at the same object, put their signals together, and get a telescope, a radio telescope that's essentially as big as the Earth. Admittedly, there's lots of holes in that telescope, right? So it's like a big, you're not making a big giant telescope, you're putting lots of holes in it, so you're not gathering as much light, remember the light gathering power, you're not gathering as much light, but you are able to see, get the resolutions. You can get much finer resolution on what you can see. And that limits, that's the limiting of what you can do. The next thing you'd have to do is put a radio telescope in space. And putting a radio telescope in space wouldn't do you too much good if you think, you know, Hubble Space Telescope is only a few hundred miles above the Earth. So adding, you know, for 15,000, what is it, seven? about 15,000 miles across the, the diameter of the Earth. Adding 300 is nothing. So the next big thing you could do is put one on the moon. Then you've got the same issue. How do you take care of it, you know? If it's out of alignment, how do you get, how do you get, how do you get it fixed? How do you get it redone? So, little more that has been done with the uh, interferometry. And I thought I'd put a picture of one of those up there, but apparently I hadn't. Okay. So let's jump on and finish up the other astronomy so we can get on to our we can get on to this week's chapter before the week is over. So, infrared. So here's an example. This is the picture of the same object. Two pictures of the same object. Invisible light on the left. You don't see too much. You see a lot of dust, right? A lot of haziness, but you don't see a lot of detail. Infrared on the right, you see all those stars. Kind of nice that you can see through it. So infrared radiation is very important for us to being able to study star formation. We just looked at the Pleiades. The Pleiades is a relative, in terms of star formation, it's a relatively old cluster. The stars have all formed, it's done, it's got a little bit of leftovers. Here we're looking, you can look deeper in, and you can look deeper into the places where stars are currently being formed. And if you use an infrared telescope, you can actually see the individual stars. Can you see a few of them here? You know, those two, is that, that's those two, and I don't know, there's one up there, but I start to lose some. It's all buried in the dust. That's all we could study until we had infrared telescopes. That was everything we had to look at. You can't tell a lot about what's going on inside that cloud if you can't see through the cloud. Now, an infrared telescope, you get a nice, beautiful picture. Yes, you still see some of the dust. You can still see some of the dust and gas around it, but nowhere near as much, and you start to see all these stars that aren't visible on there. You know, can I see these three? I don't see them. All these other ones around it, you can actually look deeper into it and study it at this new wavelength. Infrared telescopes, we can put them in space. They are on the surface of the Earth, but usually very high up. The problem with infrared telescopes is infrared telescopes, two problems. First of all, Water is very, very good at absorbing infrared light. So if you've got a lot of water around, the infrared radiation is going to get absorbed before it gets to you. 
So you've got to get up high above a lot of the atmosphere. So they launch them in balloons. They fly them in airplanes, you know, really high up in the atmosphere. And you can do observations that way. You can also put them in space. But you've got to get some way, you've got to get above most of it. If you try to observe it down towards the towards sea level on the Earth and you've got a wet area, it's going to, even if there's no clouds, it's still going to absorb all that infrared light and you're not going to see anything. So the examples that we use here are they're flown in balloons, planes, spacecraft, and they're put on telescopes, they're put into telescopes are put on high mountains in very dry areas. So we saw the one on Mauna Kea. Even though it's in the middle of the ocean, right? It's still way up high in the atmosphere. You're still above all, almost all the moisture and the infrared radiation is still visible. The other problem with infrared telescopes is their detectors. In order to detect, infrared is like heat, right? You feel it as heat. So we emit infrared radiation. Anything that has some temperature emits infrared radiation. So your detector if it's at room temperature, is emitting infrared radiation. So your detector is emitting what it's supposed to detect, which would be like your CCD emitting visible light or your photographic film emitting visible light. You're not going to see anything. So they have to be kept incredibly, they have to be kept cryogenically cold. So you have to use, you know, liquid nitrogen, liquid, I don't remember which one, but you know, one of the liquid nitrogen, liquid helium to keep it incredibly cold to minimize the amount of infrared radiation from everything around it. So you have to keep it extremely cold. Which is why they don't last very long when they're out in space. You know, they can last, they can go up and observe for a few years, but you have to keep resupplying that coolant to keep the detector cold. Because once the detector warms up, then all of a sudden, as I said, it's like that film that's got little flashlights built into it. It's not going you're never going to get a picture out of it. So those are a couple of the problems with infrared telescopes. So in a way, that way makes them nicer on the Earth on the mountains. At least you can get the coolant back up to them. Yes, sir. Space would be about three degrees. It would still have to be, you'd still have, there's still some warmth and it's not that far away from the infrared because even at three degrees you're only in the microwaves peaking. So it's actually, even all of space is still. So it's still up like a few degrees and put you in the infrared? Yeah. Well, it doesn't take much more and you're closer to the earth and you have, so it still would be, it still could be an issue, it still is an issue. Because I know they put the coolant on them and after a certain amount of time it, run, it runs out and then there's nothing else to do. So that's infrared. Ultraviolet, I think is next. Yep. Here's just a couple examples of looking at ultraviolet images. Ultraviolet has to be done from space. So ultraviolet does not make it, not, not enough ultraviolet makes it through the atmosphere. So in order to observe ultraviolet, you've got to be out in space. And these are just a couple examples. Galaxy looks interesting. And again, we haven't studied galaxies yet, but if you look at this one in the ultraviolet, the arms are standing out a little more than they normally would if you think about some of the other galaxies that we've looked at, maybe. And that's because those spiral arms are the home of where a lot of that ultraviolet radiation is coming from. The bright, hot, young stars that form the spiral arms are emitting a lot of ultraviolet light. So we can learn about different parts of the you're learning again about different parts of the galaxy better. You can see the core of the galaxy is very, very dim in ultraviolet. Doesn't stand out very much as some of the other ones had a nice big prominent core in visible light. They don't in ultraviolet. 
Then they come back a bit stronger when we look at them in like x-rays. Sometimes they come back stronger. So it's, again, we're looking, we're learning a little bit about differences in where the light is coming from and different types of light. This is a supernova remnant or part of it. So you're seeing little filaments of it here. So the star that exploded was there and it's just all its material is spreading out into space. That was a very high energy explosion. When a star blows up, that's a lot of energy. You're tearing a whole star apart. And it will emit very high energy. It'll emit gamma rays and x-rays. And as it starts to cool down, it will start to it'll still emit ultraviolet. So you can actually track the hotter objects. When you're looking at ultraviolet, remember we talked about the we talked about measuring the spectrum and where the peak was. Well, the hotter the object, the higher the energy we're going to be looking at. The cooler objects, when we look at the young stars forming, we're looking at infrared and radio. When we're looking at the hot stars and the high energy supernovae explosions, then we're looking at hotter objects. So that's ultraviolet. Again, just giving you a couple examples here as we go through the rest of this. Now, Infrared, optical, ultraviolet, radio, and I didn't explain though. Yes, sir, sorry, go ahead. Um, which wavelength dissipates quickest? Or, or does it matter? Like, you're saying um, different telescopes are using different points, like uh, you'd, you'd see different like points in a, star, in a star's life, you'd see it. Okay. So if you're, looking at it, if you're looking at a star forming, you'd want it, it's buried in a cloud, you can't see it visibly. And it's not emitting enough visible light. It's more what blocks it. Right. What, or what it's emitting. Okay. Like that young star, it may only be a couple hundred degrees as it's starting to collapse. It's going to be emitting radio and maybe some infrared light. As it forms to a star like the sun, it's emitting visible light. It may get hot as it gets, if it gets hotter or colder. The sun will eventually, the core of the sun will eventually be exposed and very hot. It'll be emitting a lot of ultraviolet. And we'll, say, we'll come back to some of those later, but yeah. It really depends on what it's emitting and what's getting blocked. But all of those ones we've talked about so far pretty much use the same type of telescopes. I mean, you can use the same idea for a telescope to use infrared and ultraviolet and radio and infrared, ultraviolet, invisible. Forget the first one, right? But x-rays and gamma rays are a little bit different. You know, you can reflect them. They'll, they'll, the, Ultraviolet will bounce off a mirror and, refl and reflect to a focus. X-rays don't. If I set a mirror up here, a little bit of curved mirror, and send X-rays at it, they're going to go right through it, right? X-rays penetrate or they're going to get absorbed by it. They're not bouncing off of it. But they will reflect if you hit them at a very, very sh shallow angle. So if instead of coming in, if this is the radiation coming in, instead of just trying to bounce it off a mirror and bounce it to a focus like we do with the optical light or any of the others, we bounce it a little bit off this one, just graze it off. So we graze grazing. So it just grazes off the surface and reflects and you can actually bring things, bring x-rays to a focus. So the mirrors in an x-ray telescope are actually cylinders. And they'd look something like this and you'd bounce things off here and you'd have to do it in a couple steps to get it to a focus. Because, again, if you just took one mirror and tried to focus those x-rays, all the x-rays are going to be absorbed by it's going to stick into the mirror or go through the mirror. They're too high energy. Gamma rays are even a little harder. Gamma rays are, gamma rays are essentially impossible. You can't focus gamma rays. So you can't actually make an image in gamma rays. And we'll look at a picture of them coming up here in a second. But you can focus x-rays. You just have to do it at a very, very shallow angle. You can't bounce them off and have them come straight back like visible light would. 
you have to do it on a very, what we call, it's called grazing incidence. So it's gray, they're just grazing, think of them as grazing the surface, just barely touching it. So here's an x-ray image, again looking at another supernova remnant, Cassiopeia A. Supernova remnant in the constellation of Cassiopeia. And Cassiopeia A is how we name the radio sources in the sky. So radio sources were named by starting with A, B, C, which constellation they're in. So the first radio source in the constellation of Cassiopeia was Cassiopeia A. The second one would have been B and C and so on. But again, you're seeing this is a very high energy object. A lot of energy when this star at the center exploded, thrown out into space, and we're seeing the remnants of that there. The remnants don't last for all that long. I mean, we're seeing a very short stage of a star's life relative to everything else. You know, a remnant may last for tens of thousands, hundred thousand years, but they don't last near as long as the stars do with themselves. Yeah? Is there anything a gamma ray can't pass through besides our, is it our atmosphere or is it our magnetosphere? Our atmosphere will stop gamma rays. The magnetosphere won't stop gamma rays. The magnetosphere stops the charged particles because it's magnetic field and that keeps the charged particles from coming in. But no, gamma rays will get stopped by the atmosphere. I mean, they're stopped, the individual atoms in it will absorb the gamma rays and then eventually slowly, you know, get them down to lower energies. Okay. So they, the energy finally gets through, but it just isn't in the same form that it was. What particular element does that, what atoms are? It would be the oxygen and the nitrogen in the atmosphere, primarily the big. It's not like ozone, it's not like one specific, like the ozone, the O3 that does the ultraviolet. That's a very specific one. If we had like a nitrogen, oxygen, gas, and a telescope, would you be able to make the picture, you think, if it absorbed enough of the radiation? I don't think that would work. I don't think you, because you'd still, it would be absorbing the radiation, but you'd still not be able to focus. You just can't focus the gamma rays. That's the biggest problem, is that they're too high energy that you can't even glance them off a mirror. Well, they don't. You said that I think even if you put the atmosphere in the telescope, even at the same density we have right now, it would still be so small. I mean, it's only because they're coming through miles and miles of atmosphere that they get absorbed. They don't get absorbed, you know, the first thing they touch the atmosphere, they're gone. You know, some, some get through here, some go here, so, you know, it would be throughout the whole, it would take that whole distance to absorb them out. If you just had that little bit of atmosphere in a telescope, it would, most of them would go straight through it. So it wouldn't affect them. Okay, but that's Cassiopeia. So that's a, it's a very strong radio source, but this is actually an x-ray image. And again, you're seeing where all the high energy is. So you're seeing where all of the interesting things are going on that are bright in x-rays. So there's not a lot going on in some of these sections further to the outskirts and further in there's a lot more. And in fact, it looks like there's a lot more going on to one side than to the other at this point. So that's what you might see in the x-rays. Gamma rays, we cannot focus at all. So you can get, you can point the telescope, you can point a gamma ray telescope and you can put a detector out there to detect gamma rays, but I can't focus it into an image. So everything is going to be a very big blob. But you can, you can, you can certainly point it, you can see a certain section of the sky and you can see that there's an object there, but you can't, and I can't do anything to bring this object into better focus. All I can detect is this, 
you know, where the gamma rays are hitting, roughly where they're coming from, but it's a very, very rough image. So, again, that's just a basic overview of the different telescopes. And then what I'm going to show you here on the last one, I think this is the last slide. There we go. On the last slide here is the Milky Way galaxy. So this is our galaxy. You may have seen a picture similar to this before. Here's our galaxy in visible light. So if you take a picture of the nighttime sky, that's the whole sky, that's what you'd see. So very concentrated into a thin little disk. There's some darker areas. But that's looking at it visible. Now if you look at it in other wavelengths, you get a different, you get a different image. When you look at it in infrared, you see some interesting structures that don't exist around. Well, there's the galaxies, but like there's an section up here. Where is that invisible? What's going on there? So when you look at it in infrared, there is a little, it's a different image. And you also don't see all this dusty area. It's a little thinner. And you don't see this, see all that, see the dusty areas. Remember the infrared seeing through the dust. If you look at it in radio, again, it's very well confined to the disk. You don't see a lot of radio emission. If you're just looking generally at the whole sky, you don't see a lot coming from except for the disk of our galaxy. So our galaxy, when you look at it, question, sir, yeah, it's okay. Why is there a spiral there? It's kind of cool on the eyes. On the infrared one? Infrared. The spiral one, that, that is because it was taken, that was taken, it was a satellite that took the image and it did it in passes. And there was a pass there either at the end or some section that it missed. So that's just not, I mean, it's been observed since then, but it's just not put into there. That's what that spiral is. No, actually that is just the absence of observations. So there was no actual observation there. But the whole idea is that when you look at x-rays, x-rays looks completely different. It looks like it's coming from all over the universe. Right? Not a lot coming from our galaxy. Now, there's some, but... The galaxy doesn't look unusually bright. Do you see our galaxy in there when you look in x-rays? When we come back to gamma rays, you do. So what are we seeing in the universe that the universe is brighter in, in other areas or not as concentrated towards the galaxy? So there's a couple things that we can look at there. There are a few bright sources. There's one right here that's really, really bright. And you see a couple over here. You see a couple really bright areas. But the galaxy as itself is not. And then when you go to gamma rays, you get, you get a few scattered ones that are sources out in the universe. And then you get, again, a thin disk. So that's just some examples of looking at our Milky Way in different wavelengths and how we can learn different things about it. It doesn't look the same. For the first thousands of years of astronomy, we had this image. That was it. Now we can look at objects in all the other ones and learn a little bit more about them. So let me finish up here, see if this will go now, yep. So just to summarize, go through a couple, I got a couple slides here to summarize what we did. Refracting telescopes used a lens, reflecting telescopes used a mirror. All the modern telescopes are reflectors now. There hasn't been a refractor built, a major astronomical refractor built in over a hundred years. CCDs, the charge coupled devices, are what we use to collect the data. We can do a number of different things with that data. We can take a picture to look at. More often you want to look at it spectroscopically and see what the spectrum looks like because we can learn so much more. We can learn more about it by finding those spectral lines. What is it made of? 
Remember the spectral lines, if they're in different places, told us how it's moving. We can learn about the temperature. The we can learn a lot by looking at the spectrum. Or just the intensity of the light, depending on exactly what you're looking for. We like big telescopes because we get to see much more light. We get to gather lots of light. And we get to see things that are much fainter. And we get better resolution. Big telescope, if we're looking at the same wavelength, big telescope means bigger resolution. The resolution of ground-based telescopes is limited by the atmosphere. So atmosphere, no atmosphere, we can get rid of the atmosphere. Ground-based telescopes would all be wonderful. Because of the atmosphere and we kind of need it, you know, don't want to breathe, we want to keep breathing, we need the atmosphere. It limits what we can see in the optical telescopes. And if you say just looking at the stars, you can see some of that waviness on a summer, hot summer evening, you can see that. Radio or space-based telescopes, the resolution is only limited by the size of the telescope. So it doesn't matter. There's no atmosphere and radio telescopes are not affected. Radio waves coming through the atmosphere are not affected by the atmosphere in the same way. The other thing we do is we use what's called adaptive optics to minimize the atmospheric effects. So adaptive optics can change the shape of the telescope as you move it, can change it subject to conditions in the atmosphere, and go through and help that way. You can go through and then computer analyze and get your, you can get back to almost the theoretical resolution you should be able to receive. Radio telescopes need to be big for resolution. We need to be big to collect. A lot of radio sources are faint. We need to collect a lot of light. And the telescope has very poor resolution. In order to get around that so that we're not building, you know, kilometer wide radio telescopes and trying to get that built, we use interferometry. So instead of building one gigantic telescope, which would be prohibitively expensive, we build a lot of little telescopes, which are very cheap, and then connect the signals together to use interferometry. And that helps us to improve the resolution. Infrared and ultraviolet telescopes are really the same as optical. They use the same techniques, same type. Said infrared has to be kept cold. But other than that, it works pretty well. It's, a, it's pretty much the same as what we've talked about. Infrared, we can use airplanes, balloons, or put them in space, or on mountaintops even. But ultraviolet telescopes have to be up in space. So do x-ray and gamma rays. Any of the high energy stuff, you know, we, we don't want those x-rays flooding down on us. Our atmosphere is nice. If we can get rid of the atmosphere, we'd have no limitations to the telescopes. We could put a gamma ray telescope you know, right out here in the courtyard and observe gamma rays, but it wouldn't be very pleasant for us. First of all, we're not breathing. Second of all, we're getting bombarded by x-rays and gamma rays constantly, which wouldn't be very pleasant either. Although I guess if you're not breathing, you wouldn't care what you're getting hit with, right? And again, gamma rays we can detect, but not actually image. So that finishes up chapter three. Yay, finally, we're through chapter three. We're going to go on our next section, and I'm just going to bring up the beginning of it here. I'm not going to try to go, because we're coming to the end. I don't want to try to get too far, but I want to just sort of explain what we're going to be doing for this next section. You know what? I didn't even, I have to get the slideshow, so I can't even do it yet. I can explain what we're going to do, and I'll do it that way. What I'm going to do, our next unit is chapters four through eight. So I do not expect you to read. <laughs> I mean, it should take us about, hopefully about three lectures. I'm hoping to get through it in three lectures. So we're doing a lot of material. This is on the planets. 
which is not the emphasis of this course. If you take the 103 course, we're going to talk, we talk about the planets and you know, they'll talk about the planets in detail for a, for a long time. So I will put the slides up and what you'll see is I've taken little bits and clips from each chapter. So I'm trying to hit some high points for it to give you an overview of how the solar system formed and then talk very briefly about each planet. I tend to ignore the Earth in this class because there isn't much there. I want to talk to you about the other planets. Sorry. So sad. But I don't talk a lot about the Earth. If you have questions on it, I'll be happy to answer them. That's not a problem. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time. You'll see that the Earth-Moon chapter is kind of really condensed down. Because I want to tell you about Jupiter and Saturn and the other planets and how they formed and, and go through some of that. So don't try to read all five chapters. You can if you want. They're interesting. But don't, you don't need to try to read all five chapters. I would recommend looking through my PowerPoint slides and then highlighting the sections. And if I haven't put them up already, I can't remember if I did. Are they up? Is anyone? Yeah. They're up? They're up? Chapters 4? Okay. So if they're up, take a look at them. And those are the sections that I recommend you looking at because when I go through to do the exams or the quizzes, I'll go through my PowerPoint slides and that's what I'm going to ask you from what I either have up there or what I know I've talked about based on that. So that's what to look at for this. When it comes to the exam, which is going to be chapters 3, 4 to 8, and 9 is the next exam, this is one unit. So. A third of your exam will be chapter 3, a third will be chapters 4 through 8, a third will be chapter 9, which is the sun. So you still got another couple weeks before we get to the next exam. But just so you're thinking, don't think, oh, this was five chapters, this is going to be where I'm concentrating. It's not. This is all one unit. It's one lesson, just like telescopes was one. You'd have as much on the planets and have them as much on the sun. So when I split it up to exams or quizzes, I look for the whole. I don't do you know, five times as many questions on that just because it was five chapters. So again, you don't need to try to read all those, and I'll give you, I'll have those, I'll just say the slides are already up, so people should be able to have those, and I'll start on that then on Friday, since I forgot I have a condensed slide, otherwise I'd have to go through each one individually and skim through things, and that'll drive people nuts as I'm skipping slides. You don't need to worry about that. I'll use the one condensed one that I've already done. So since we're down to two minutes left, I will just stop there, and if there are questions or anything, don't forget you got an article due on... Friday, we have a lab to do on Friday, and we will start talking about planets on Friday. And this is our last class of the summer, just so you know. Fall officially starts at 5 a.m. on Friday. So you still got one more day of summer, full day of summer tomorrow still. So enjoy your last full day of summer, and I'll see you Friday.